the thing about genetic information is that it's digital. It comes in these digits. We know how it's copied. We know how it's encoded. And that's what makes the study of DNA and genetics such a cool and powerful thing. The thing is this, just because we can digitize something doesn't mean it's the most important part of the information in that complex system. It's just a piece of information in that complex system. So for example, now the environment on the other hand, because we can't digitize it and discretize it, sometimes we have a hard time naming it. Sometimes we have a hard time characterizing it. We think, well, it just can't be real or it's not relevant or it's not the thing worth studying. It's like, no, 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 no. Just because you can't study it don't mean it's not the thing that's driving the system. You just ain't thought that way. In science is we study the thing that we can identify digitally, which I get. I sequence stuff too. But if I want to understand any complex phenotype, like how do you get antibiotic resistance or how do you get smart people or how do you get a criminal justice system or how do you get a championship baseball team? The digital part of that information is a key part, but it ain't the only part. And oftentimes it isn't the most meaningful part. And so this is the framing that I've used through all my questions is there's different types of information that define how a system does. The contextual stuff that's muddy sometimes, that's hard to put a finger on sometimes, really isn't if you sit down and carefully think about it in a certain way and try to measure it. And it is this dimension, I feel like, that is underappreciated across the board in studying complex systems. Context is king, whether in language, ecology, culture, history, economics, or chemistry. One of the core teachings of complexity science is that nothing exists in isolation, especially when it comes to systems in which learning, memory, or emergent behaviors play a part. Even though this paradoxically limits the universality of scientific claims, it also lets us draw analogies between the context dependency of one phenomenon and others. How protein folding shapes HIV evolution is meaningfully like the way that growing up in a specific neighborhood shapes educational and economic opportunity. The paths through a space of all possible four-letter words are constrained in ways very similar to how interactions between microbes impact gut health. How we make sense both depends on how we've learned and places bounds on what we're capable of seeing. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week on Complexity, we talk to Yale evolutionary biologist C. Brandon Obunu, about the importance of environment to the activity and outcomes of complex systems, the value of surprise, the constraints of history, the virtue and challenge of great communication, and much more. Our conversation touches on everything from using word games to teach core concepts in evolutionary theory, to the ways that protein quality control co-determines the ability of pathogens to evade eradication, to the relationship between human artists, algorithms, and regulation in the 21st century. Brandon works not just in multiple scientific domains, but as the author of a number of high-profile blogs exploring the intersection of science and culture, and his boundaryless fluency shines through in a discussion that will not be contained 
about some of the biggest questions and discoveries of our time. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe to Complexity Podcast wherever you prefer to listen, rate and review us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash give. You'll find plenty of other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Be sure to check out those job listings. And thank you for listening. Brandon, it's awesome to have you on the show, man. Thanks for joining. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a quite an honor and a pleasure. So a little while ago, you gave a talk at SFI, and it was on the environment, the idea of the environment. To the degree that I consider this program context rather than content provision, mm-hmm. that's where I want to start. That's where we always start, which, as you said on uh, Radio Lab. I do my science biographically. Mm-hmm. So let's start with your biography, where you come from and what brought you into science and into the kind of questions that you pursue in your work and how you ended up collaborating with folks like Sam Scarpino and mm-hmm. Tina eliassi Rad at SFI. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I do my science biographically. I think a lot of people have landed on that one as one that they appreciate. And I think, you know, what that means is I think we're all products of the experiences that we've had and they trickle into the things that we're interested in ways, even that we're maybe are not so clear or unconscious to us. I think with me, it's a lot more explicit. I mean, I think the quickest way to describe my career, I say this all the time, but I'm basically just a copy of my mother, just with a lot more opportunities. It really is the shortest cut way to get us to exactly how I ended up there. I mean, she taught social studies and math and special education. So she was a school teacher. And that's about as far as people went in her demographic in that generation, born in the 40s. You know, so I was raised, to, she was curious and is curious, loved science, loved Star Trek, was a Trekkie in the 60s and the whole nine. Like I had all of that, really was into Russian literature. We always just had an expansive mind. So I think being flooded with ideas was a part of what my upbringing was. And loving math and science was a part of who she was. And then I think being an advocate for social justice and talking about things like class and race and gender in the household was a part of who she was. She kind of was of age during the civil rights movement. And so thinking about the African-American experience and how central that is to kind of what this country is, was a part of my household as well. So when you intersect those three things, you get who I am in terms of my proclivities. Now, my specific proclivities and the things I interest, that's where things that are just generational. I'm more of a child of the HIV AIDS pandemic, not in the sense that I was personally, I mean, I was indirectly personally affected by it, but not that anybody in my family was affected by it. That was just the defining problem of my youth. I was young when Magic Johnson announced that he was HIV positive and I was a huge, huge kind of jock and sports junkie as a kid. So these were the things that crafted my imagination around what was possible. And so Thinking about health and disease was always the scaffold set of problems that I thought about working on really from high school. And I think I was an underachiever in high school. One thing about me is, and this is still true, I'm not especially competitive with other people. I don't get joy out of beating people. I just like making and doing cool things. I'm one of those people. And I think feels like, you know, we'll get to that, but it feels like complex systems have been good for people who think that way, you know? So I was an underachiever, went to college and got my act together. And I sorted between multiple career paths. That's another thing about me. I can't keep my eye on one job. I spend time in medicine. I spend time in basic science and in math and chemistry and all these different things. And it kind of led to this panoramic career where now I'm a basic scientist. I study evolution and information 
and disease. And I think those arenas allow me to think about problems as diverse as the COVID pandemic to antibiotic resistance to kind of diseases like type 2 diabetes to forces like racism and incarceration. Well, in order to get into your work on evolution, I kind of want to back into it because you wrote a couple of pieces reflecting on John Maynard Smith, you know, legendary evolutionary biologist and his idea of protein space. And that gives us a really great sort of hook into talking about context through the way that you relate that to this concept of epistasis. So I'd love for you to introduce epistasis and to talk about Maynard Smith and this piece and why you found it so valuable. And then also to talk a little bit about the research that you did with uh, Daniel Hurdle Mm -hmm. on using that as an analogy Mm -hmm. with epistasis, because that's very, very rich. And I want to spend some time on that with you. So just to extend this biographical thing about who I am. I, again, my mother taught me to care deeply about history. Every time I enter a field, I'm curious how the field arrived, where it arrived. I've always been interested in that. And this is one of the things that I try to tell my trainees, you know, the people that I'm responsible for is, you know, I walked in evolution mostly blind. I came out of my second year of medical school, didn't love that. Because again, that's just all information. And it's all just people following protocol. I thought maybe I could do the job, but I knew I wasn't going to love it. So I walk in evolution and I'm like, wow. And I had had a little bit of exposure from that when I spent time in Kenya studying mosquitoes. But I read everything voraciously. And one of the things about evolution is it's one of these great fields where history is a part of the craft. Like the historical figures, reading the origin of species, learning about who the big figures were, learning about the modern synthesis. And the great thing about reading history of your field is you meet people that are kind of like you or people that you wish you were like or people who saw the world. And so when it came to people who couldn't keep their mind on one idea, John Maynard Smith just shouted at me. Right. And so John Maynard Smith, I had been exposed to game theory, John Maynard Smith. I had been exposed to evolution of sex, John Maynard Smith. And then I read his 1970 paper on protein space where he basically it was a rebuttal to a kind of a quasi creationist paper that had come out. But he basically talked about how you can think about protein evolution as word to it, analogize it to this game called word ladder, where word is like evolving mutation by mutation through space. And he kind of encoded evolution as occurring through the sequence space of information. And other people had kind of thought about analogous ideas, but I think he did it in this extremely clear and basic way that was so important for my understanding of evolution at the time. And I think another thing that was cool about it is he was one of the great mathematical biologists ever, but that paper was very, very, very simple. And so it's kind of one of these things where you always make things as easy and simple as they need to be. And so he had a very, very profound impact on how I think about things. And so it stayed with me. I kind of owed a lot to him in that paper for kind of introducing me to basic concepts about how evolution works. Now, flash forward, I think during my postdoc, I did my PhD doing virus evolution, and I didn't actually interact with that paper or protein space or information or computation very much at all during graduate school. And when I was a postdoc, I read a bunch of things. I had a bunch of revelations, and I was like, huh, I wonder if we can expand on this analogy to really do some real evolutionary work to potentially teach how evolution is done. And you know, I've even created a game based on that, a real, real kind of digital, you know what I'm saying, game that's being developed into a digital tool. And I've used that analogy, the word evolution analogy, to teach fundamental concepts in evolution like epistasis. Now, what's epistasis? Epistasis is this cutting edge concept in modern evolutionary genetics. 
And what epistasis is when you have a mutation, right, that does one thing. Say, for example, you have mutation A. It's responsible for a phenotype. Mutation B gives you a different phenotype. But when you combine them, you get a phenotype that you could not have predicted from individuals. So it's this surprising interaction between things. And I think in complex systems as a whole, nonlinear interactions is one of the fundamental kind of pieces and characteristics and descriptions of a complex system. For example, emergence as a phenomenon comes because you stick things together and something surprising emerges. So I think epistasis is this manifestation of kind of a features of a complex system that manifests in genetic systems. And I've been able to use this basic word game, right? Word ladder, where you basically are moving from one word to another, changing one letter at a time. I've been able to use this analogy to think about, measure, teach, and even develop new tools for how we think about epistasis. So that's been really, really cool. All right. So there are so many different twigs off of this or like, you know, mycorrhizal branches off of this into other work that we've discussed on this show. And, you know, one of the ones that comes to mind is, you know, SFI president David Krakauer is really interested in a fundamental theory of intelligence and in particular, how people become experts in games like the Rubik's Cube, which, you know, is a kind of literalization of the hypercube that you're talking about across which you find paths you know, or like the rugged landscape across which, you know, systems evolve as they adapt. So I remember seeing him give a talk last year in which he was saying that basically what defines smart or expert agents from stupid agents, and, you know, he's kind of notorious for talking about how there needs to be a fundamental theory of stupidity, not just a fundamental theory of intelligence, is the ease with which a system will find that strategy. But like a big piece of what you're talking about here, and I think, you know, a piece that is crucial in thinking about this stuff is, again, the environment and the context and the way that we don't exist sort of in isolation. You know, we ourselves are not stupid. You made this point in your talk when you were talking about how similar you are from your mother, how much more opportunity you have. And we talked for folks that have been listening to this show for a while with Matthew Jackson, whose work on social networks and the dynamics of power and social networks have everything to do with this term betweenness centrality, where you find yourself on the network and how basically if you want to improve someone's position or their status in society, you just move them to a different neighborhood. You don't just like give them a bunch of money. It doesn't do them any good. You've got to move them somewhere else. And so, you know, I just want to throw one more log on this fire and then toss it back to you to riff on, which is there was a famous paper in artificial intelligence that came out a few years ago. Alexander Matt Turner et al. Optimal policies tend to seek power. And it was talking about how basically that this has to do with work that you've done, and maybe we're kind of like jumping ahead here, but work that you've done on the evolution of antimicrobial resistance and on the way that viruses like HIV evolve in response to stress, where they were basically saying that in a sense, again, power seeking or the ability to flatten or smooth out the rugged fitness landscape available to an agent or you know an organism is what kind of determines its intelligence or it's like a proxy for intelligence. And so AI is going to be this thing in their estimation that is basically a jailbreaking 
algorithm that's constantly trying to escape its confinement. And again, you talked about this. You talked about this on Radiolab on the liberation of RNA. Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear you go on this kind of Woo! thing and the role of one's sort of placement in systems mm-hmm. in the way that we think about the intelligence of that agent and how that shows up in your other research. I love it. I love it like for 15 reasons. I mean, my goodness, you expose yourself to so many ideas and you consume so many things. It's just so impressive how you've been able to triangulate this. I, I got a lot to say. You talked about my relationship with my mother and how I had a very good example of how context and environment and history influenced opportunity. So I did not need any teaching to tell me that success or intelligence or any of these traits that we associate with our ability to kind of hang out in these fancy places that they are kind of profoundly influenced by our context and who we've been around and the opportunities. I had an example from that at home, flat out. I saw somebody who was computationally gifted get no opportunity, flat out. I saw it every day. I saw somebody get disrespected in my house. So I had a heads up on that. And so, yeah, I've carried that one forward. So the question is, what is it that I've done with this interest in how the environment and how have I actually tried to fold that into my research program and or unfold it and wrap it around my, you know, how I think about complex systems. And this is how I think about it. If you think about genetic systems, which I love, and I studied, you know, I'm trained in population genetics. The thing about genetic information is that it's digital. It comes in these digits. We know how it's copied. We know how it's encoded. And that's what makes it beautiful. That's what makes it kind of the study of DNA and genetics such a cool and powerful thing. We can identify a string of information. We can associate it with certain outcomes. And that makes it so powerful and beautiful, right? The thing is this, just because we can digitize something doesn't mean it's the most important part of the information in that complex system. It's just a piece of information in that complex system. So for example, now the environment, on the other hand, because we can't digitize it, and discretize it. Sometimes we have a hard time naming it. Sometimes we have a hard time characterizing it. We think, well, it just can't be real, or it's not relevant, or it's not the thing worth studying. It's like, no, 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 no. Just because you can't study it don't mean it's not the thing that's driving the system. You just ain't thought that way. In sciences, we study the thing that we can identify digitally, which I get. I sequence stuff too. When I get the sequences on my computer, I look at those and I go, huh, that's why that. But if I want to understand any complex phenotype, like how do you get antibiotic resistance or how do you get smart people or how do you get a criminal justice system or how do you get a championship baseball team the digital part of that information is a key part but it ain't the only part and oftentimes it isn't the most meaningful part and so this is the framing that i've used through all my questions is there's different types of information that define how a system does the contextual stuff that's muddy sometimes that's hard to put a finger on sometimes really isn't if you sit down and carefully think about it in a certain way and try to measure it. And it is this dimension, I feel like, that is underappreciated across the board in studying complex systems. You think about something like genetics. The way geneticists historically talked about genetics, you talk about Mendel's experiments, you talk about fundamental great experiments. They almost talk about the gene as if it operates independent of a context. Like, there's just a universal truth for what a gene's supposed to do. I got a gene for hemoglobin, right? No, 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 no. There has never been a piece of DNA that's ever functioned without a context. It's never happened. Every single one has operated in the context of other genes and other environments. And so to fully appreciate whatever the complex system is, social, biological, physical, you have to kind of understand and appreciate this dimension. So again, uh, there's a ton there and it's always a challenge to prune it down and find the next path through this space of possible conversations. But that's exactly what I want to talk to you about because, you know, this particular work 
really gets to this thread throughout complex systems thinking that I love to hammer on with people, which, you know, one of the first workshops that I ever attended at SFI was on developmental bias in evolution. Mm -hmm. And this is a big piece of what you're talking about here. You know, if you think about somebody like Jeffrey West and his work on biophysical scaling, one of the big takeaways from that work is that we have this idea, and this is reflected in the work of evolutionary biologist Simon Conway Morris is also Mm -hmm. popular talking about the convergence in evolution towards sort of particular basins Mm -hmm. of possibility and why it is that when we look, the metabolisms of animals in Jeffrey West's case, everything falls on this, like kind of around this one line out of this huge space of possibility. And why is that? And in what ways are the physical constraints of organisms as important as the quote unquote random variability of these things and the space of all possible phenotypes? One of the things that you talk about in this piece is in reference to John Maynard Smith talking about how selection has to operate in such a way that the path that you're talking about, mm-hmm. whether it's the protein space path or the evolution of letter sequences or bit strings in more kind of, they can't pass through non-functional intermediates. And mm-hmm. so, you, you know, functional molecules, you say, are not dispersed randomly through spaces of possible sequences. They're clustered in networks so that natural selection serves as an effective search algorithm for locating biophysically viable sequences. So when people are talking about like, you have a number of awesome columns, one of which is at Wired, you have a very adroit way of communicating things in terms of pop cultural references. So I don't feel totally out of place here bringing up stuff like Rick and Morty, where they have like an alternate universe in which everyone is like a piece of toast or a chair or some nonsense. And it's like, okay, that doesn't happen. Why is that unlikely? And your work gets into this. And so there's that piece of it. And then another piece that I feel like is worth commenting on here is, you know, there's this popular, because we're talking about fitness landscapes, there's this popular idea that was espoused by Stuart Kaufman about the adjacent possible and how as time goes on in evolution, the adjacent possible expands because you've got more and more things interacting with each other. And so it's just sort of a, you know, an explosive recombinant space. So the space of actual and possible meaning itself expands Mm -hmm. In this way. And so when you're talking about, you know, Maynard Smith responding to the guy's name was Frank Salisbury, the guy that mm-hmm. eventually came out of the closet as a creationist, you know, the way that evolution is taught doesn't really emphasize this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't understand specifically, you know, what Stephen Jay Gould called acceptation or what colloquially be understood as remixing comes into the way that order emerges from the interaction of all of these things and why it looks like evolution falls uphill. And so, you know, that's just a ton for you to play with, but I'd love to hear you talk about that. And then from there, we can get into, I think, a little bit more about the way that you studied this stuff, the work you did with Google Ngrams and the implications this has for Mm -hmm. communicating complex ideas. No, all amazing stuff. Wow. So I think when it comes to like Stuart Kaufman's Jason Possible, you know, I think the fitness landscape is one of these profoundly important ideas from the modern synthesis that reframed how we thought about the process of adaptive evolution. Like it's kind of like climbing peaks and falling into valleys or basins like you described. And I think like a lot of analogies in science, it's obviously profoundly useful. But I think it might be time for us to kind of think about other analogies or expansions of it, because 
they are also limited. Analogies always have their limits as well, you know, and I think some people have literalized <laughs> the fitness landscape and kind of made everything a little too rigid in my view. So I think the adjacent possible is an addendum. It's something that expands on that idea. The idea that all right, it's not just kind of singular solutions, but that the space of possibility expands and that there's more potential solutions to a given problem. I think that's really cool. I think this is more recent idea of the fitness seascape. Yeah. So the fitness seascape, this notion, and yeah, people use it differently, but I interpret it as this notion that it's actually something that's constantly moving, you know, that's shifting balance, which is related to the original idea as well. But the idea that environments are constantly shifting that the problems that evolution has to solve are not static ones, but complicated ones or the adjacent possible. All of these things are applications of how the environment influences how we think about this problem. So what I'm saying is I think the next iteration of these models and formulations will invoke things like the environment and epistasis much more rigorously because that's actually how these problems work. They're not simple static problems. They're much more complicated and dynamic. That doesn't mean we can't study them. It just means we have to kind of think about them a little bit differently, right? So that's how I feel with regards to that. I think protein space is a good example. You get the same type of information in protein space as you can get in a fitness landscape. You can actually take protein space, which is a word going from word to word, to gore to gone to gene. You're moving through and you're moving letter by letter. That's a lot like a path, you know, quote unquote, uphill in an adaptive landscape. I think what I identified in the original protein space analogy was I said, okay, John Mann Smith came up with this beautiful analogy to explain evolution. And as I explained in the article, you know, I was really, really excited to hear that Francis Arnold, right, who won the Nobel Prize in 2018, talked about this paper very centrally in her quest to understand how to evolve proteins, right, using selection. So my point is, this has been a profoundly important analogy for a lot of people. But what I said was, okay, can we add to it? Can we add to it? I'm always trying to take the analogies that we use and take the tools that we use and add a level to them so that we can now understand something even better. One of the limitations of the Maynard Smith analogy was there was no quantitative information in the words. It was just a word made sense or it didn't. It was binary. A word made sense or it didn't. A word made sense or it didn't. And so what I said to myself, you know, I had read this paper on Google and Graham, for those that don't understand, that space of this project where a bunch of scientists scanned all the books released in a given year, like 1800, 1850, 1842, what have you, 1928, all the way from basically from 1800 to 2000, and had calculated the number of times that every word was used that year, okay? And so when I saw that, I said, okay, well, I have numbers now I can associate with the words in protein space, in the word to gene thing. And so now I can actually transform this into a real fitness landscape where the words now have a height associated with a quote unquote fitness. And that fitness would be how much the words was used in a given year. And so given this, that now I've taken John Maynard Smith's original analogy, which was very simple, but used to communicate a profound point. And now I've imbued it with this other level of sophistication that allows us to study. So I've done real population genetic theory on these word landscapes that I've created. I have a paper where I introduced a way to create not just word to gene. You can create all kinds of four-letter words, flip it into other four-letter words. I told you I'm designing a game around this. I've taught this game in class. I now have this instrument that I can use to not only perform population genetics, but explain complicated and non-intuitive concepts like the fitness landscape and epistasis to broader audiences. And so far, I've been successful. I've taught, it's been taught to Harvard undergraduates, 
It's been taught now multiple semesters. Yale undergraduates are taught this semester. I taught it the other day in a guest lecture, you know, in a college class. I could teach antibiotic resistance with it, evolution with it. I've legitimately used this analogy to build research questions in my laboratory. And so that's the dream to have something that has scientific utility for me, as in I'm able to use it to do real, quote unquote, basic science. And I can also wield it for, you know, I don't want to say social good, but to be able to teach people things, hopefully introduce new people to the ideas and uh, empower people in some way. So, you know, that's, I love that idea that you can use Ngram data to use the popularity of a word as a proxy for its fitness. I don't know if you ever saw, Bruce Sterling wrote this sort of a Dadaist short story using the 300 most popular words in the English language only. And it's sort of like Mm. an abstract painting. Wow. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I'll try and dig up the link for you. But you make a point in this paper with Hartle that certain paths through, again, to really drill this, certain paths through are kind of inaccessible because word to war, for instance, W-R-E, is a drop in fitness. And so the only way you're going to get there is, I love the idea of the fitness seascape, right? Is if the water is stormy enough, mutation rates are high enough, or you know, there's enough drift going on that you're going to wobble the landscape and get over there. Yep. But the thing is that statistically, yep. those events are relatively unlikely. And so even that intermediate, if it's given a chance, is never going to appear in high abundance. So it has me wondering how we can think about this in terms of leveraging this kind of thinking as a predictive model for genotype or phenotype frequencies, or you pull out and you're thinking about this in terms of using these concepts as tools for improving the communication of complex ideas to the general public, which is something you're obviously really talented at. And of course, we have this issue now that people like John Verveke are calling the meaning crisis. You know, it's a crisis of social epistemology of like, we live in such a complex world. And you've addressed this, you addressed this in a piece that you wrote at Wired on the problems that scientists and policymakers are facing with communicating the science to the public during a crisis Mm -hmm. like COVID. Mm -hmm. And so there's this question of like, to what extent can we think of this as the seascape getting more turbulent? In what way is that an opportunity in the way that people like SFI external professor Andreas Wagner, who you quote in some of your research, are thinking about systems navigating this kind of thing? And I guess there's just one more piece to stack on this is way back when we had Jennifer Dunn on the show in episodes five and six, and she's studying food webs. And I asked her back then to what degree she thought that looking at food webs could be a useful way of thinking about opportunities in technological evolution and specifically opportunities for research and investment in innovation and like understanding where to look. Mm -hmm. We talked about that with James Evans on the show where he's using computational techniques to explore possible areas of fruitful research in between disciplines where, like you said earlier, you know, like these are not well specified. We don't know how to think about them quite yet. And so we're not even necessarily looking there. And so when we had Carl Bergstrom, the last thing, when we had Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West on the show, and they were talking about calling mm-hmm. bullshit and how it's mm-hmm. how important it is to have a non-expert or a fool in the room, they're kind of like acting like noise that you're feeding into the overfit machine learning algorithm of the experts in the room. Where, you know, it's like you need somebody to stand out 
and look in and inject a naivete or a foolishness into this. And I don't know, there's just probably way too much to pick at there. Not. But I'd love to hear you talk about how we can kind of think in these ways to improve the way that we do science and then improve the way that we talk about science to the public. You know, I'll start with my mother. I moved through Bergstrom. I moved through Maynard Smith. And I think I'll hit all those things. So let's see how we do here, you know, because I think there's a threat. And I think one of the things about my mother that people ask me, where did I, you know, how, how did I arrive and what was my influence? And I have a lot of amazing scientific mentors. But one of the things that was incredibly important to me as a young person was watching my mother's ability to move in different audiences and communicate well with everybody or sternly with everybody. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I've seen my mother in a room full of suited men, take them down, cut them down. Like, I mean, like with incisive, quick, witty or charm. Right. And I was a little boy watching this and being like, wow, this woman has it. I would see her talk to an individual who is addicted to a drug and talk with a type of compassion, but also be stern. My mother famously broke up a fight in a movie theater to the point where I got street cred in my neighborhood for years, literally for years. And I'm saying that to say being able to communicate and put your best foot forward across audiences. I saw the power of that from young. And so I took that and I've taken that through my career. So I take that and I'm reading John Maynard Smith, 1970. I already know John Maynard Smith is one of the great mathematical biologists to ever live. But he is invoking the child's word game to cut down the creations. He could have wielded all kind of fancy mathematics. Of course he could have, but he didn't do that. He picked the tool that he needed to pick to have the conversation he needed to have. The same thing my mother did. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So what I would say is this challenge of how we can get ideas into the most people's heads across contexts, I would argue is the biggest scientific challenge of our time. That's the one we need a Manhattan Project for. That's the one we need an Apollo mission for. The Apollo mission of our time is how can we get more people to understand this stuff? Because like you said, it's, it's too much. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't stop trying to unify the laws of physics. Of course we should. But when we do, if I can't explain that to anybody with 14 people in front of a Hadron Collider, what's the point? You got to get scientists off the moon now. <laughs> <It's> like- <laughs> exactly. She's <laughs> off the moon. So I believe this is a frontier. Now, you know, I'm also a grumpy old scientist. And so there's a scientific communication movement. And I look at that cynically, too. And I'm like, I I don't know if that's it. I'm not talking about everybody needs to be rapping on TikTok about their work. That's not what I'm doing dances. That's not what I mean. And that don't get me wrong. That's fine. That's great. Like, I'm glad that people are doing that work. What I'm saying is scientific communication is a technical frontier. We need to be having intelligent conversations about how it is exactly we're going to get these ideas into the most minds possible. You know, Bertram's a hero of mine. I mean, he knows that. And I think a lot of the stuff that he's done has influenced how I think about a lot of the world. So that's how I would think about it. I think this ability to be able to communicate in different spaces with different audiences, to assert yourself, to make things clear is incredibly powerful and important. I think it was important for me growing up. It was such a part of my identity growing up. And then seeing that in the sciences that I admire has also been important for me. So a week or two ago, I was lucky enough to get into conversation off of the show with Henry G, who's one of the senior editors of Nature and just wrote this really cool book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, where one of the threads through that book is the way that mass extinctions have acted on Earth. And of course, I think about this all the time. I probably bring up episode 29 of Complexity Podcast, where I talked about mass extinctions 
favoring generalists and kind of punishing specialists as they perturb ecological mm-hmm. networks. I talked about that with David Krakauer. And, you know, G and I were talking about the way that this is kind of like resistance training for the biosphere. It's a stress test mm-hmm. that challenges our creativity as organisms. And this is where I feel like we can plug into the work that you've done on antimicrobial resistance and on specifically mm-hmm. this piece, the host cells endoplasmic reticulum proteostasis network mm. profoundly shapes the protein sequence space available to the HIV mm. envelope. Again, you know, you're not thinking like atomistically about these single mm. interventions, but about a complex stress mm. impact and adaptive response and how these stress responses, as you and your co-authors put it, this is Jim and Yoon at et al. Tune the levels both chaperone and quality control mechanisms simultaneously. And again, I speak to you in your role as a representative of an underrepresented group of people. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a cliche or a truism that so many creative innovations emerges out of the black community, right? Or mm-hmm. emerges in a kind of a different way of thinking about this, emerges out of island communities, you know, like mm-hmm. the British invasion mm-hmm. or, you know, popular music coming out of Iceland or Australia. That there's something yep. about these contexts that generate creativity. And I'm curious, given what you've written about all of this and what you've written about something we talk about a lot on the show, actually, which is the way that COVID revealed that certain kinds of science anyway have to operate as crisis disciplines. You know, you have mm-hmm. to throw stuff at the wall and test things and act before you have any kind of certainty. And it's actually improving the way that we both practice and understand science as this mm. fluid provisional exploratory thing. So I'd love to hear how you anchor this specifically in your work on microbial evolution. And then from there, kind of mm-hmm. branch out to address all of the analogical beautiful. stuff I just brought up. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. God, you know how to throw these nice fastballs. It's like they're so juicy. They're just so rich. Thank you for that. Thank you. So you have a lot of people at SFI, for example, that think about the origin of life, right? And I think I heard this lecture when I was in medical school. The lecture was boring, but one point was made and it completely changed my career. Like, there's these moments that I you know from my time, I mean, it was mostly worthless, but there was a few moments from my time there that were really useful. And they were talking about the origin of life and somebody who studied the cell biologist said, the DNA is not the molecule of life. The most important kind of structure of life is the cell membrane. And I was like, Huh. Now, of course, this person studied the cell membrane. So they would see it up say it was self-serving <laughs> for the lecture they was given. But the point is you needed to be able to separate the information from the outside world. And that's the first time I had ever really thought about how important it is that you have this environment inside of a cell and you have to keep the order of things inside the cell. A cell is a dynamic thing. It's not just like a membrane and a piece of DNA sitting in the middle and a couple of machinery to copy. No, no, it is a complex set of fluid dynamics and instruments that are crashing into each other and exploding and dying and living and being repackaged and energy. It's this kind of extremely complicated machine. And so I got into thinking about when we think about DNA to RNA to protein as the central dogma, as the flow of information. Well, again, to my environmental context thing, once you get that protein, is the job done? No. You have to have a sophisticated set of machinery inside of a cell to make sure the proteins are folded, to make sure they're getting to where they need to go, to make sure that bad and misfolded ones are gotten rid of. And so what I would say is, and I hope to have this debate with Chris Kempes and Michael Lockman and these people who study origins of life questions, I mean, not debate, but a fun debate about 
in my view, it wasn't life until you can regulate these things. You need it, you know, all these other geniuses at SFI who study origin of life. You know what I'm saying? That was my, my thing. My thing is you have to be able to think carefully about how the information is processed, packaged, and discarded. When you get bad information inside of a cell, you have to have a mechanism to do that. And so that's where I got thinking about protein quality control, which is the system in place to make sure that proteins are getting out. If you misfold it, you got to go. But you might be naive. You need some help folding. And the cell has these ways of sensing subtly. It's like life. Sometimes you need a little bit of help. Sometimes you need to get your behind out. And the cell has this way of being able to tell which one of those things to do. My research program is all into this now. As like, how did it evolve? What does it do to evolution? If you tweak aspects of it, how does that change? Watch this. How does that change protein space? So if you're not folding your proteins properly, does that change the shape of protein space? So now I have all these type of questions. I'm writing some, you know, I've written some papers about this. I'm writing more about this, working with some people, Matthew Shoulders at MIT, Eugene Shankovich at Harvard, a bunch of other people, Sam Scarpino, Rafael Guerrero at NC State, brilliant. I've worked with him. A lot of really amazing people. Maggie Epstein at University of Vermont. A lot of amazing people I've worked with on some of these problems. So that's how I got into the cell biology thing. And that's how I've, again, the biography of context, it absolutely manifests there in terms of the protein quality control stuff. Now, what's fascinating about the second part of what you said with regards to kind of this cultural stuff is the thing about folding protein, we think about protein chaperones, these proteins that help us fold proteins. One of the original heat shock protein, and for example, is one of the original ones. We've thought about the connection between that and innovation from the beginning. Because the idea is this. If you have help folding your proteins, right? If me and you have a lot of help in life, okay? What does that do to our evolvability or our ability to innovate? That is, maybe I can carry around more baggage if I know I have help to get me through it, <laughs> right? But if you don't have chaperones around, if I got nobody to help, I got to only carry the things that are fit in a certain context, right? But- if I got friends around to help me out, I look at my life, look at all my flaws. I'm riddled with flaws. And the reason why I'm riddled with flaws is because I had a great mother. She masked me from those environments, from the deleterious effects of my flaws. Same thing with my friends in college who protected me and took care of me. Same things with a lot of my friends and colleagues and mentors now. Same thing with Sam Scarpino, right? He covers for my flaws. And so now, how is that associated now with innovation? And I look at that with the African-American experience, the black experience in America, the black experience around the world, for example, just as one, like you said, I love how you articulated it. It's true. It's island communities. That's totally right. So the experience I'm going to use is just an iteration of that. Yeah. When you're in a difficult situation, you have to rely on your community. That's the way it works. You have to rely on your community. And in fact, some of the great cultural innovations in the black experience in America come specifically at difficult times. Most recently, it's not hip hop came during the Reagan war on drugs. Okay. And so that's a time when communities needed to band together. They needed to kind of talk about the pain. They needed an artful way to do that. And boom, you had that. And I think jazz has a kind of an analogous, you know, history. Rock has an analogous history. Bluegrass has an analogous history. The blues is called the blues for a reason. <laughs> so a lot of innovation has that type of story where it's communities banding together serving as each other's chaperones, right? And are now allowing to transform what could be a deleterious mutation actually isn't deleterious. So now if I have proximity to crack cocaine or to drug dealers or if there's gangs in my neighborhood, that would be deleterious. But now because of this cultural pride and pride in my community, I now have an artful and insightful way to describe this. And that's the birth of hip hop. 
And I think a lot of innovation shares those characteristics. So this seems like a great place to plug into the Sine et al. piece on deconstructing higher order interactions in the microbiota, Ooh. a theoretical examination. This is really cool. This is a piece where you know, you're talking about gut flora. And typically the way that this research has been done in the past is you have these lab animals growing up in sterile environments that are like the boy in the bubble kind of thing. And then you introduce one taxon at a time and you say, okay, with you know H. pylori, this thing doesn't do so well, but with acidophilus, maybe it's got better resistance. But you're sitting here and you've come up with this in silico animal model where you're able to look at the nth body, nth order interactions. And so I'd love to hear you talk about this in relationship to everything you just said, specifically about one of the weird things that came up for me in this paper was I wasn't familiar until reading this that insects have relatively fewer gut microbe taxa than vertebrates do. And I'm curious about mm-hmm. that. What is it about insects that's different from like mice or humans? And then the other thing was about how you find that there are sweet spots, specifically at like ninth order interactions, you have this spike where it seems like the effect of these interactions is much more pronounced. Mm-hmm. And this is all connected to me with something you were just talking about, which is about innovation and the way that we think about this in terms of information theory as surprise. Like Gregory Bateson talks about information is the difference that makes a difference. Yeah. Like that's, I think three different questions. I'm sorry, but like there's something about again, epistasis and surprise. Mm -hmm. That's one piece of it. Mm -hmm. And the other, the other piece is why different systems have sort of engendered or preferenced, you know, levels in which they're cultivating more or less surprise. And that, of course, has to do with everything you were just talking about in terms of adversity and diversity mm-hmm. and something that's really common in SFI research, which is the benefits of diversity to solving complex problems. So I don't know. Oh, my goodness. You read and understand so much. You're incredibly impressive. Thank you for this. Like, and I said, you understood this work. Like, I'm just like, that's what's amazing. Like, you read this stuff and you're like, wow, you know, maybe we didn't write it that badly after all. It's heady stuff, man. There's no lie. I was, I was like yeah. sitting there like yeah. chomping nootropics trying to get through this stuff. So, nah, okay. Fair enough. No, we got to do better then. But nonetheless, you seem to have really gotten to the spirit of all this. And um, I think with regards to that work, which I'm delighted that you read, it's a collaboration with a couple good colleagues of mine who study, who are really like insect ecology, disease ecology people who formally study the microbiota in their laboratories. Sarah Canuti at UConn, Sanayat Barak, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And like you said, when I read those papers, I was talking to them, it just shouted at me the analogous problem in genetics with regards to mutations. Because again, we love to find the smoking gun thing in science. Yo, oh, gene for diabetes? Where's it at? Gene for resistance? Where's it at? In this case, the taxa that's associated that I need to drink in my kombucha so that I can get a good night's rest so that I can fix my hangover (laughs) or whatever. We want to have that taxa. But what we're learning is not unlike genetic systems where it's not a gene, it's a suite of genes interacting in this nonlinear fashion that create this surprising phenotype, be it your height, be it your diabetes risk, be it whatever other phenotype we're interested in, mixed with an environment. The same exact thing from an informational perspective, the problem is exactly the same in the microbiome. So the idea there is it's not that you have a taxa 
that's responsible for a phenotype is that you have these nonlinear interactions between taxa that are conferring the phenotype. So I think the phenotype we use is like risk of disease or something like that. Probably this insect can be, you know, invaded by a parasite or something like that. And certain kind of combinations of microbes in the microbiota can prevent this or make you more susceptible. And so we made this point completely abstractly. We're just making like a point that this type of system is not different than a genetic system in the sense if you really got to understand the interaction between things if you want to understand how the microbiota works. Don't get wrong. I'm not poo-pooing it. I'm not saying it's bad. No pun intended. I'm just saying that you have to begin to embrace the complexity of this system. And people are doing it. I think there are people, Alvaro Sanchez, my colleague, yeah, who does this in the microbiome, brilliant physicist by training, does work on kind of nonlinear interactions between microbial taxa. So this is catching on. And we weren't necessarily the first ones, but I am proud of that work. You know, it's not published yet. Uh, I'm, not, I'm proud of that work for that reason. So that's where we landed there, that there's interactions. But again, it doesn't stop with genetic systems and microbiota. It goes to, I think, businesses. <laughs> it goes to sports teams. My view is that higher interactions is a deep and important feature of all complex systems. Now, you asked a question about what is it about certain organisms that have certain types of kind of end or higher order interactions between what it may be the microbes in their microbiota. Yeah, that one I don't know. And I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, I got to ask somebody who studies the microbiome. I think the quick answer would be that it would be about the complexity of the diet because, you know, microbes are in the diet. So I think the more things you're sampling from is probably going to contribute. But this is an empirical question. That would be a cool question. In fact, there are people who have asked that in humans and done stuff like humans who are vegetarian versus humans who are eat. So they've looked at different diet. Eric, um... Tammy Lieberman, people have looked at mice, Seth Rakoff, other people have looked at you know, mice diets and looked at how that changes the complexity of the microbiota. And so the people are asking those questions in terms of we are seeing the signature of how diets influence. And from what I understand, overall, the complexity of the diet is related to the complexity of the microbiota. But I think that's still a little hand wavy, right? Like I can't tell you for sure, for example, if one of those diets has more higher order interactions between microbes. I think that's a level of nuance that I don't think we quite have the technical acumen to ask at the level, which is why we wrote the theoretical paper, because we like, yo, I mean, we didn't say yo, (laughs) you know what I mean? Uh, In the paper, we're like, yo, you need to look at these higher order interactions between microbes if you really want to get after how this highly complicated and critically important piece of life is functioning and contributing to, as we know, weight loss and psychology. It has all these influences on all these aspects of who we are in order to get there and to be able to manipulate it. One day, we're going to have to know a little bit more, less about what each individual taxon is doing, but more about how they're interacting. Yeah. Yeah. So this for me calls back again to Bergstrom and West, but also to a conversation I had as episode 72 with Simon Dedeo, where he was talking about people having different explanatory aesthetics, basically, or heuristics by which mm-hmm. one person or another or one school of thought or another determines or decides on what constitutes a satisfying explanation. And how he mm. said, basically, that in a way, there's this deep congruence in thinking styles between a breakthrough physicist who offers some grand unifying like electromagnetism, mm. he said, is basically like a conspiracy theory joining what we're seeing in electricity and what we're seeing in magnetism. And that the mm. difference between somebody like James Clerk Maxwell and your sort of tinfoil hat lunatic is that they are surrounding themselves with people who think differently. There's a mm. diversity of mm. cognitive styles, 
by which scientists are holding one another accountable and that this is not true in communities that are eager to sort of reinforce the biases of a given approach. And so, you know, when we were talking about this with West, one of the things that came up was, again, about the media diet. And so this is where I want to tie into your piece that you wrote for Wired about how scientists need to admit what they got wrong about COVID, where you say that, Mm -hmm. first of all, you say, direct quote, scientific community's reluctance to come clean about uncertainties and missteps are not only understandable, but even appropriate There is a time and place to have abstract debates about the true meaning of efficacy and a time to act on the information that we have in service of the public good. But of course, the problem with all of that, and this is something we talked about again in 42 with Weston Bergstrom, was the Harvard research on how misinformation travels faster through a network than Mm -hmm. the debunking of that information. And so there's Mm -hmm. a sense in which, you know, if you want to think about it in terms of fake news, it's like a smaller particle that's able to like get through the membrane more easily. And in order to think critically about something, it's making the seascape, if you will, more, you know, a little bit steeper on that path. The learning curve in that way, in that sense is steeper. You know, I feel like everything that you're talking about here points to a real deep and pervasive problem, which is just that intellectual honesty and rigor. These things are hard and Mm. they require friction. It's like telling somebody a lie to be kind of uncharitable about these things is easy. Explaining why something has been rigorously checked and fought over and people have come to a consensus about something through blood, sweat, and tears, this is hard. And so I'm just curious how this reflects for you on, again, this issue of social sense-making and of how we can do better as a society with addressing the fact that, you know, cheating is always going to be a little bit, you know, it has a kind of a competitive Mm -hmm. advantage in this respect. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, yeah. These are great, great questions. You know, I think we're venturing into the world that's at the event horizon between my technical views on ideas and, you know, my spiritual views on ideas. I think we're at that, you know, ironically, you know, uh, but they're related. And I think they all are empirical. I think while I don't really believe in moral arcs to the universe, I certainly don't believe in aura or a more Pinkarian, Stephen Pinkarian view of like things are just getting better. I don't believe in either of those things. I definitely don't believe in either of those things. What I do is when I think about the misinformation problem that we're having now and how difficult it is to convince somebody that a vaccine works, I think about conversations that were had. Again, I invoke history in the United States. I mean, it was easier to believe that the enslaved were lower on the evolutionary scale and that that's just how the world was shaken out normally, that that was natural. That was easier for people to believe because the alternative to that required them to change their worldview. It's like, wait a minute. That's what's amazing about reading Thomas Jefferson, right? You read Thomas Jefferson and actually Jefferson kind of understood he actually knew that it was wrong. And he said, if this is a wrong thing, we're in trouble. He was smart enough that he was able to actually begin to grasp that. I'm saying this to say, despite that, right, you look at the reflection that the country was able to do back then. And abolition was a movement for a reason. We went to war for a reason. And even though the reasons we went were complicated, and certainly Abraham Lincoln himself was complicated, right? We have overcome worse before. There was a time when we didn't believe that. 
we don't have to go back to the 1850s and 1860s. We can go back to the 1950s and 1960s. I had this amazing conversation with a very famous scientist, a white scientist who grew up in Alabama and was talking about what segregation actually looked like. I actually never had a white person tell me what segregation was like from their perspective. It was one of the most profound things I've ever heard in my life. And there was a time when him doing nothing, which he did, and he kind of regrets it, was what people did. Meaning there was a time when believing that these people couldn't sit next to you. People would rather stand up than sit next to a person of a different race. Like just things that were completely like absurd that sound today. There's a time now where that's ridiculous, you know, despite the backlash against critical race theory. I'm saying this to say there's been a lot of dark, convenient ideas that people have believed because it served what they were doing and the way they were living. And they've been conquered before. And it's just not going to be easy. Right. This one, we can conquer the war against science. We can conquer this one as well. And what it took was I think this was true for 1860. This was true for 1960. It took courageous, bold leaders and people to believe in what was possible for a better society. And so I think the thing we need to fight against is that nihilism that because we can't convince our uncle at Turkey Day dinner or whatever, or because we're arguing with people on Facebook. And I get Bergstrom's work talks about how much harder it is and people are double down. I get that. But it can't be harder now than it was during abolition. <laughs> I mean, you, you have a hard time convincing me of that. You know what I'm saying? It can't be harder now. It just means that we got to be more courageous. We got to get better. For example, to make a point I made earlier about this communication has to be a frontier of science. I think what President Krakauer did with regards to SFI Press, I saw that. I was like, see, that's what I'm talking about. You got to make that a scientific and technical frontier of an institute like SFI that has always been on the cutting edge. So again, I don't have a quick answer for that. I'm delving into my spiritual views on uh, that we can just do better but I do think, you know, there are signs that we can create ideas that are more digestible, that can compete with the bullshit and can vanquish the bullshit because we've done it before with ideas, at least as destructive, dark mm. in the past. Awesome. Yeah. So maybe it's actually that the moral arc unbends towards justice, right? We've got to make the road a little right. smoother. And that's, again, like to call on what we were just talking about a few moments ago, that's maybe happening because... Certain things that seemed hard in the past, the shape of things is changing in order to make those paths a little less costly. You know, it's making it easier right. for us to adopt these practices in the face of everything else. I talked about this with Tyler Margitis on the show. You brought up jazz and these things as a response mm -hmm. to trauma. And that's one of the things that we discussed was the way that mm -hmm. sometimes again, to the Andreas Wagner piece is like, sometimes you just have to improvise your way out of these situations. You can't play by the book. So this is where I want to get the last kind of piece I want to explore with you is a little sci-fi. I loved that in your column at Wired, you interviewed BT, the techno artist uh, mm -hmm. who just unbundled himself into 24 hours of generative musical samples. And so you come to this thing, it lives on the blockchain and you just go into it and it's always serving you a different kind of music depending on the time of day, et cetera. And I've been thinking about this kind of stuff for years and it was really cool to read this conversation between the two of you, which like everything else we've mentioned in this episode, I'll link to in the show notes. He was talking about how cool it's going to be for artists when you can transfer their style with machine learning to an algorithm that's generating he gave the example of Prince. If it's generating new Prince-like music, not that like, I mean, we could probably never hear the end of Prince's unreleased music anyway, but like, right. why not make a machine that can customize Prince 
like music to your biometric data and give you, you know, something that suits your mood at some given time. And, you know, his vision is that this is all going to be, I guess, on the blockchain in some kind of way so that it's automatic royalty payments are managed ethically and so on. But it gets to this deep thing, which, you know, you kind of talked about earlier, and we talk about this on the show a lot, which is how fundamental research like SFI is research into the unknown. And so we don't know how to describe it in a way that offers the kind of traditional investor a clear return on their investment. It's not like, okay, we're asking for a particular pharmaceutical result. Mm. You know, we don't know what the impact of this work might be for another 50 to 100 years. You know, the people that support this work are people that tend to be standing on the top of a mountain seeing very, very far. And yet, Mm. when you think about what it means to quantify a person, then you're getting into these issues like you get into where some of the crowning achievements of our artificial intelligence are these programs like AlphaGo that managed to surprise a Go master. And again, it's this question of how do you get something that looks like a creative or an innovative response out of something that's been trained on a data set that you've got like variables that are known variables. And then again, to give a kind of like justice angle to this, then, you know, there's so many good people, people like, you know, Melanie Moses and Kathy Powers and others at the Algorithmic Justice project at SFI are really concerned about the way that this is refracted through the lens of how algorithmic decision-making impacts the lives of real people in the world, how it impacts, mm-hmm. you know, criminal justice and housing programs and whether somebody can get a loan. And so if we're making decisions for people on the basis of, you know, the biases involved in quantifying them so that they can be analyzed with our machine cognitive adjuncts, then people are falling through the gaps in those systems. And Mm -hmm. also there's something that Prince can do that a Prince bot can't do, which is surprise you with the next album. Right. And so that piece was what makes an artist in the age of algorithms. And and I think that this is a tip of a much bigger kind of question, which, you know, just again, to throw, you know, a historical race example on this, you know, you've got people like Henrietta Lack, whose non-consensual medical contributions have yielded Mm -hmm. immense value. And of course, it just seems naive to me that BT can assume that artists would be fairly compensated in this kind of regime. So that's an invitation to get kind of real big and speculative with you. But I mean, I know you got it. So I'd love to hear you riff on that. No, no, no. I love this. And I love this pivot because I think it invokes certain things, but I think it kind of taps into a different, you know, I think like a lot of people in the SFI community, and I think scientists, we're supposed to be building the future. You have to be thinking about the future in all realms. And I think what was fascinating about BT, who I met through various other social media engagements what I respected about us, number one, he was extremely well-regarded as an artist, right? Like he's a very, 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 very well-regarded musician. Making music is something he's very, very gifted at. He's had a lot of success doing, and he will always have a success doing. But he's thought carefully, I guess for an outsider, I'm like, oh, a musician, you just play music, you know? But the way that musicians are treated and rewarded and acknowledged and compensated it's something that I just had taken for granted. You know what I'm saying? And so on one end, what he's talking about is you can have an algorithm that trains on Prince, that gives us Prince music when we're in a bad mood and we want to hear a Red Corvette song or whatever. 
or the Purple Rain joint when we're in a soulful mood. It can deliver a song that's like that. That sounds artificial and cheesy, but I think what he would say is, number one, the industry already copies. <laughs> we already use algorithms. Mm-hmm. Every record executives already be like, give me yeah. one of those. <laughs> oh, you know that? Yeah, yeah. Why don't you perform and give me, give me one of those? Oh, oh, that new hit song? Give me one of those. We, it already does that. The weekend is just like the Michael Jackson bot. Yeah, it's like exactly. Unless you already does that, number one. But when it does it, that's much more pernicious than an algorithm that does it and is making sure that the prince's training set. It's whoever did the training set gets the money. And I think that's what's interesting. It's like if Prince's training set, it don't matter. You, you, all these iterations and variations on it. And I just thought that was a fascinating way to think about art. Is his whole thing is. I mean, he wouldn't see it and say it this way, but like art just isn't some abstract thing that people appreciate. There are people and bodies and lives behind it who have to raise their families, who want to maintain their legacy, who want to make sure that they're, whether or not I agree with uses of the blockchain or not, or I, you know, he has been thoughtful about the manner that artists get appreciated and connected to their art. I think the NFT thing is very, very close to that. And that's another conversation. But I appreciate that step, which is why I find it intriguing. It's not so much whether I agree or disagree, but I find it intriguing. And I appreciate people who are thinking more deeply about what an artist is. It's not somebody that just stands in front of a stage and plays a guitar. It's somebody who's creating something that could conceivably itself be creating something. Like, I just think that's a super dope idea. The notion that you're bigger than the things that you've created, that someday that there are algorithms that can get good enough and that can kind of pivot around, can evolve around the things that you're doing. I find that to be extremely dope. So that's why I found that fascinating. And I think that he might be, or ideas like that might be onto something. Well, yeah, agreed. And, you know, that kind of, again, to tie that into SFI, we just had a really, really wonderful community lecture the first in two years with Sarah Walker at ASU. And uh, I can't, yeah, I can't believe we haven't hero. brought her up in the conversation yet because your stuff on, you know, traversing the hypercube of protein space or letter strings is Legend. so adjacent to the work that she's doing with Lee Crone and others on assembly theory yep. and thinking about yep. life in this much more basic physics way, like is not dependent on uh, particular chemistries, but as something that we can identify through mass spectrometry, just based on the observed complexity of the data that we're getting from the spectrum emitted by other worlds. And so, you know, that this idea, you know, the string of the assembly space, she actually quoted Michael Lockman in the talk as saying, when people ask him how old he is, he says he's three and a half billion years old because that's the informational continuity that he is currently embodying. And so in that way, like you just said, in that way, and David Krakauer says this all the time, he said he chose not to have kids because he sees his cultural contributions as being sort of more significant and that he's not hung up on the idea of having biological children per se. He has idea children. And so there's that sense in which you could say an algorithm trained on Prince is like the idea child of Prince. And Mm -hmm. in the broadest sense, the kind of complex systems way of thinking about life as more informational than chemical, then Mm. you're there. You're like living in it. Anyway, I want to, before we go, I I just want to give you the opportunity to give a parting shot to people and whether that's talk about the work that you're doing now, what you're excited about, what questions you're prosecuting with your collaborators or, and, or whether you have any advice to passionate, hungry minds about 
how to get over the feelings of like the imposter syndrome stuff, the inadequacy, the sense of exclusion from being able to party with these kinds of ideas and questions. You know, those are two things that I'd love to hear you talk about before we go. Yeah. uh, Love it. Love it. I think just regards to things that I think about, I just got back from this really cool workshop called Reimagining the Sensual Dogma. It's about a lot of the things that we talked about, challenging basic conventions and hyper-simplistic thinking in biology. And that doesn't mean we completely disabuse ourselves of the whole thing. It's not, you know, the baby bathwater dichotomy, but begin to kind of embrace and lean into complex. And, and this is something complex systems did first as a field is, lean into the uncertainty, right? It feels like chaos embraced that kind of unpredictability and create a formalized science of it. And I just think I want to do that with regards to higher order interactions. I want to do that with regards to environment and in thinking about that across a bunch of different problems. So I think my research program continues to work at the molecular level and at the social level, and we're going to continue to push on these questions for the foreseeable future. And I'm excited about that. I think when it comes to the second question about how do we get over these feelings that we have, be they imposter syndrome, be they what have you. And number one, I have imposter syndrome right now in this conversation. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you mentioned Sarah Walker. Sarah Walker's going to hear me talk. And oh, my gosh, Sarah Walker's going to think I'm an idiot, you know, because Sarah Walker's so damn brilliant. She probably talks to everybody and thinks that way, you know, but Sarah Walker's also very nice. So I don't think, you know. Well, I'm saying this to say, I always think that when I'm in these types of, and I think there's a little bit of that, frankly, that's healthy because, you know, there's a little bit of, ooh, you know, let me make sure that the stuff that I'm saying is well organized and is fact-based. I think the way that one emerges from imposter syndrome and the thing that's helped me is learning and seeing so many people who I admire or who did admirable things be shockingly and embarrassingly wrong. <laughs> Ain't a single person I've ever admired who was right about everything. It's never, ever, ever, ever happens. Ever. I think the difference with society is that some people get punished differently for being wrong than others. I was just at a workshop with Eric Weishaupt, Nobel laureate, and he asked the most questions ever. I think simple, complicated. It never, ever, I mean, of course, at that level, you don't really feel the need to impress anybody. But the odds are he was like that along the way, which is how he made big discoveries. There's no question too simple for him ever. Because if he doesn't understand the basics of the question, that's your fault, not his fault. And that has become my attitude. I don't give a damn what the room is. I don't give a something that I studied for 30 years. I know how to read and write pretty well. I'm going to tell you that much right now. I'm no Michael Lockman, but I know how to read and write pretty well. And so what I'm saying is that I don't understand something. That's your damn fault. And that's my attitude now. And I'll ask you, and you have to explain that. And if you don't explain that, the fault is yours and not mine. And that's true for everybody, regardless of where you are and what your discipline is and what stage of your training it is or what lot in life. It's like, explaining things is the job of the person. Now, of course, it takes effort on your part. You got to do the reading and what have you. So I would say that, number one, with regards to imposter syndrome. I think the other thing about fitting in is so many of us, and this is one thing I learned having been in these fancy schools since after college. 
so many people are, and I learned this in medical school early. I think I had a lot of really amazing medical school classmates, but so many of them were driven entirely by other people's mm. opinions. Like that was the only reason they woke up. And it was kind of fascinating for me to see. It was like, wow, like you really put the career so that people at a cocktail party would be impressed. Like that's, <laughs> that's enough for you. Right. And so when I learned how people are driven by other people's opinions, I was both frightened and inspired. I mean, number one, I was frightened because it's like, wow, I can't believe I'm around these people. But number two, it was inspiring for me because I make my own goals. People ask me, why do I write for Wired? Why do I write about this? It's because I want to. How's that going to be looked upon by your colleagues? I don't know. You ask them. That's why that's my answer. What's that going to be like for your tenure file? I don't know. I'm not on the committee. Ask people that's on the committee. I got one life to live. I got one bite at the apple here. I'm going to do the things that I think are important. I'm going to do the things that I think are original and help us understand life and each other. And if I can do that at the end of my career, regardless of where it gives me, I feel satisfied. So I can't tell anybody to have my perspective. But what I can say is that living for other people is a bridge to nowhere. And once you disabuse yourself of that, there's so much fun to be had, so many discoveries to be made, so many things to learn, so many cool people and ideas to embrace. That's a fabulous place to end it, man. Brandon, this is so great. I'm so glad that you came to SFI, that I had a chance to talk with you. I really hope you're back soon. I really hope it happens. So yeah, man. Look, my trip to SFI changed my life flat out. I don't know how old you are. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I remember there was an old all right, so did you like grunge back in the day? Yeah, I, had my, I had my share. A little yeah. bit. There was an old video called Blind Melon. Uh-huh. Remember the B-Girl? It was uh-huh. a B-Girl. And it was a video and the B-Girl, she's hopping around and she's looking like doing the B-Dance and everybody's looking at her like she's crazy. And at the end of the video, she finds this B-Island and everybody's a B. <laughs> That's how I felt like when I was at SFI. Like, I'm like, man, everybody here is as crazy as I am. <laughs> That's a fact. You know? <laughs> but of course head-hurtingly brilliant, you know? And so it was incredibly empowering for me to be around that community. And I think it told me that I got a lot of hard work to do to be as good as anybody there. But I think my way of thinking about the world is welcome somewhere. So thank you for that. Thank you for everything you're doing at SFI. This podcast is the best of its kind. You're doing incredible work, reading everything. You are so SFI in the way you do your job. It's just cool to see. Thanks. I mean, I think we were talking about this whole show. It's like, you know, I'm just some random fool. If I'm wandering around in the woods, I'm lucky to be surrounded by wonderful people. And that includes you, man. So again, thanks. And I look forward to getting this out there. Take care. All right. Take care, yourself. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.